Thanks, Marielle. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome up to Adma. Welcome to Nix. So great to see you here. My, my name is Rowan. And today we start a new series, a series which I'm excited about and a little nervous about. As we think through the way God's Word holds out, uh, how we ought to live and the particular sins that cause us to stumble. Um, so why don't we pray and ask God to help us uh, to work through His Spirit and by His Word as we listen to Him this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together this morning, you know what's been going on in our lives. You know the ups and downs, the things we've been struggling with, the things that we're joyful about. Uh, you see us better than we see ourselves. And so we ask that as we open up your word today, over these next seven weeks, that you'd shape us more into the likeness of your son. That you'd show us the depth of our sin and excite us with the depth of the forgiveness you've shown us and help us to live for your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever bought something and never used it? You know, that type of thing, you're like, oh, I definitely need that, and you get it, and you get it home, and it sits there. There's a type of product that marketers know that you will do this with, that they sell to all of us. It goes by many names. You might have heard of it as the tummy trimmer, perhaps the gut gouger, the orbitron, the physitron, the ab cruncher, the ab slide, the ab doer. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those exercise equipment things that we get, and we think, yes, I'm going to have abs of steel. I'll buy this thing, and I'll look like the person on the ad. I try it a few times, and then I put it in the garage next to the exercise bike where I've hung my clothes for the last two years because I haven't really been using that either. Right? You know the type of product that it is. We have the best of intentions. We dish out the money, and we have a few goes, but then we don't use it very well. One of the overwhelming realizations the Bible gives us is that in so many ways, we are not like God, and God is not like us. God speaks, His creation comes into being. He always does what He plans to do. I speak, and my small creations only do what I want them to do about 50-50, and that's a good week, you know? God, it just happens. He's perfect. We are not. He's, he, he's made everything, and He knows everything. We do not know everything. He's all-powerful, and we are not. There are so many differences. When it comes to abtoners... It's another area that we're different from God. It really is. Because it's not that he needs to use an ab toner. God doesn't need to tone his abs, right? He doesn't need it in the first place. But unlike us, he never loses interest in the things he buys. He never loses interest in the things he buys. Revelation 5.9 gives us a glimpse of the reality of what God bought. Look with me. Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy, speaking of Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. If ever you felt like you weren't valuable, the creator of the universe tells us he paid for you by his blood. He bought us with an incredible cost. The purchase price for us to be in relationship with the creator of the universe was the blood of his son. That's an incredible cost. Jesus' death in our own place. question is, what did he do it for? Why did he buy us? To put us on a shelf in the garage? Hang us somewhere in his creation? It was kind of an impulse buy on Sky TV in heaven, late night. God's like, oh yeah, I'm like those. look at those humans. No one looks all right. I'll take that one. Ah, oh, what have I done? He's no good. I'll just put him in the garage. No, that's crazy. It's one thing to pay like $169 for an ab cruncher and never use it, but it's totally absurd to think that the God of the universe would pay for us with the priceless blood of his son and never do anything with us and never have any purpose for us. 
but the garages of society are filled with hundreds of ab crushes. And that's a bit of a waste. But the idea that Christians sitting around in churches, unchanged by God's mercy and love and forgiveness, that's an even greater waste, isn't it? It's offensive to the God who brought us to think that we're not to be doing or anything or to be changed in any way. No, God purchased his people to change us. We've not just been saved from something, we've been saved for something. For an intimate relationship with, with the creator of the universe, for a life spent honoring him. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Friends, for the next seven weeks, we're going to be thinking through how we honor God, who paid an incredible purchase price for you. As a church, we're going to see he didn't buy us to just sit around, but to make us into his people, to make us more like his son. He saved us for something, for relationship with him and for pointing people to how great he is. Sometimes I think our thinking is a little bit wrong when we, we come and we say, yes, Jesus died on the cross so my sins can be forgiven. And that means when I die, I'll go to heaven. And we stop there. Now that's true. It's an amazing news. But does that mean nothing changes now? Are we kind of in the, the garage of God's creation just waiting for Jesus to come back and then he'll do something, something with us? And the New Testament says that God has forgiven our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for it, ransomed us, bought us back from the situation we got ourselves in. But now he wants to kill it. He wants to kill our sin. He's removed the penalty for your sin and for mine, but now he wants to remove the presence of our sin as well. So over the next seven weeks, we're going to be dying to sin and rising with Christ. We're going to see what it means to, to live as someone forgiven by Jesus. How that changes the way we think and the way we live. You might be here and you might have been a follower of Jesus for the first time. Or maybe you're still checking out Jesus. You're seeing who he is. Or you may have been following him for the last 70 years. Either way, what we're about to see over the next few weeks is God's view of the human heart. We're going to see his incredible mercy and not giving us what we deserve but giving us his word and helping us by his spirit to be more like Jesus. Over the next seven weeks, God's going to help us to die. To die. To die to selfishness, to die to pride and anger and lust and laziness and greed. But he's not going to leave us there. And that passage uh, that we just had read from, Mar from Mariel for us in Colossians 3.1, Paul tells us, if you've been raised with Christ... Then seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The Christian life is not merely a life of saying, no, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. It's also a life of saying, yes to God's good and perfect will, to, to turning from one thing to another, to, to putting to death one thing and rising to living God's way, God's good way and right way. Becoming a Christian, following Jesus, puts an under new management sign slapped right across our lives, where we then get to stand and say, there's, there's now so much more our new manager wants to do in us and through us. He definitely bought us for a reason, to make us his 
And so this series will help us all go under the knife of the great surgeon, the creator of the universe, who will open up our hearts to the living and active word of God and do some deep work. That's what I'm praying. As we come to the creator and the surgeon, we need to ask, what is it that needs treatment for us? Is it dying to pride and rising to humility? Is it dying to anger and rising to patience? Is it dying to envy and rising to kindness? Is it it dying to impurity and rising to purity? Is it dying to gluttony and rising to self-control? Is it dying to laziness and rising to zeal? Is it dying to greed and rising to generosity? Now, we could have listed any sins from the New Testament. But these seven are a pretty good summary. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin, all sin, is death. And it's really important to recognize, as Nick said at the start, that all sin, all rebellion against God leads us to death. Not just these seven. They're not somehow more ugly than the rest. No, all sin at its heart is the same because all sin places someone or something other than God in his right position on the throne of our lives. Sin, rebellion against God, it's, it's an expression of misdirected or disordered love. It's loving things in the wrong order or loving the wrong things the wrong way. And that's ultimately what idolatry is. Not merely setting up a little stone idol or a shrine in our bedrooms, but seeing our foolish and fatal attempts to find satisfaction apart from God. And that is a revolt against the creator and lover of our souls. As we look at our sin, it should provoke sorrow and hope. Sorrow when we realize the depth of our sin and how grievous an offense that is to the God who loves us and made us, but also hope when we see the way that God wants us to come toward Him, that that He actually quenches the thirst we had for those misdirected and misordered ways of love, that He provides a better way to live that only He can satisfy What we're going to see is that killing sin isn't simply an exercise of great willpower. It's not less than that, of course. But the only effective way to kill sin is to look to and draw on the richness of what we have in Jesus. The only way to kill sin is to look to and draw on the richness of what we have in Jesus. His death and resurrection in our place. Then, with a confident security of what God has given us and the solid hope of a new creation and the power of God's Spirit within us, we can see God at work through our lives and we get to partner with Him in that. Now, none of us are going to achieve perfection, not this side of Jesus' return. But here's the thing we don't have to. For Christ's obedience is already ours, the war is already won. When He died on that cross, He said three brilliant words in John 19 It is finished. That means we can fight the fight with confidence, knowing that we're already accepted in Christ and that someday we'll be made fully into his glorious image once and for all. But that future hope has real ramifications for us now. It means real change now is possible. As you consider the list of things to die to and rise to, my guess is if if you're anything like me, there are a few that stand out. There's some that, that prick our conscience and we go, oh, yeah, that's, that's yep, right there, that's, that's it for me. But putting your trust in Jesus doesn't mean you're going to look and think and act like Jesus straight away. 
For most of us who, who trust Jesus, we've invited him into our life to run it and to rule it. We've, we've put him as the new manager. We are under new management. We've invited them into our houses, and he's kind of like he's in the hallway of our lives. Maybe we've even invited him into the lounge room, and he's kind of changing some of the lounge room aspects of our life. But for all of us, there are rooms that we've locked the door to, to God. Rooms that we like, just the way I've got them, thank you very much. Rooms that we don't want to redecorate, or sometimes rooms that we've got no idea how derelict they are. Uh, growing up, my family adopted this cat. It was like pure black. It just rocked up on our doorstep one day. We, we lived on kind of 25-acre blocks all around us. And so we thought, ah, oh, not really cat lovers, but we kept, we kept this cat. Um, it was a pretty fun cat. It was, was, was weird. Um, maybe all cats are weird. I'm not really a cat lover. But, but it was kind of weird in that it was kind of these, these beady eyes, this black little cat, and, and it would always hide under furniture. You'd be walking past, it would jump out and be like, like this at you, and then run away. We're like, what is wrong with this cat? So we call it Gollum, because we figured that's kind of what happens in The Lord of the Rings. Anyway, one, for, for a number of months, the cat would go into the study in our house and just sit on the desk and look at the wall. There's no picture on the wall, no paint, just, just a wall. It'd be like sitting there like this, just tail flicking. I'm like, in general, I think cats are weird, but this was super weird. Like, what is, it's just sitting there in the study, looking at the wall. Well, it wasn't until later that we found out that that wall was filled full of termites. In Australia, termites are a massive issue. They come and eat away the structure, and you can't see it because the outside looked great, but the cat could hear it. And there was something the cat could see about this wall as it just sat there going, oh, what are they doing? What's happening in there? I'm sure if you could speak cat, that's what it would have said. But we couldn't see. Perhaps it is like that for us. Sometimes we have rooms like that where we think it's fine and then we open up the word of God. We've seen the same passage over and over and God by his spirit says, there, Rowan, there's where you need to be shaped, more like my son. That room that you were so proud of, let me show you how it's driven by this or that. And we see the problems that we have under the surface, problems that aren't immediately obvious. It's my prayer that God shows us those and helps us as we work through the next seven weeks. For me, one of those rooms is pride. It's pride. Just this week, in preparing to preach uh, this sermon, I listened to a, a talk um, that I'd heard when I was at my last church as a pastor there from my old pastor. Now, I often listen to talks from other people, and generally any of the good stuff I have comes from someone else, because you want to try and help people to understand the Word of God the best way. But I'm listening to this talk on pride, and it was really helpful, and I've taken some points from it. But, but I get to the end of a talk, and he prays. And as he prays, the kind of musicians and the people who are leading walk out on the stage. And I go, oh, I wonder, because it was when I was there, right? I wonder if I was there. The moment he's praying about God cutting out our pride, I stop the recording, fast forward to go, oh, did I come out? <laughs> you idiot! Like, are you serious? I'm, we're so full of ourselves. And then when I found that I wasn't there, I was honestly disappointed. I'm like, oh, I didn't play a cameo in a sermon on pride. Just... We are so entrenched in serving ourselves. And pride is the sin that we start with. It's the surgery that we need because pride is really the heart of all sin. It's confidence in ourselves rather than in the God who made us. It's a focus on me rather than God and his plans and purposes. And that's what sin is. In understanding pride, we'll get to understand the nature of all sin. So let me come back and show you how pride is behind the birth of sin in Genesis 3. 
At the beginning of the Bible, God made Adam and Eve for perfect relationship with God and one another. They're in the garden, uh, perfect, living under God's word, living the way God knew best. And they obeyed God's word. And it was good. It was very good. God had said, now, you, you can have whatever you like, but do not eat from the tree that is in the center of the garden. What he's saying is you don't belong at the center of the garden. Only God belongs there. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's why Adam and Eve have no business eating from it. Because knowing good and evil isn't just saying, oh, I know what is good and I know what is evil. It's actually an idea of knowing good and evil is to to determine what is good and what is evil. It's to say to decide for yourself what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. And, And the point is, that is God's job, not ours. If he made us and he created us to live in his world, his way, then he gets to choose what is right and what isn't. And we don't. How attractive it was for Adam and Eve to be in God's position, to determine what is good and what is evil. And that's exactly what the serpent offers Eve. Look with me, Genesis 3.1. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent cast doubts, where? On the word of God. Did God really say, you can't do this? Did he really say that? And it starts making us doubt, or putting us in a position where we choose to say, yeah, maybe God's word isn't good. Maybe I am better than God. Maybe I've got a better idea of what is good for me and not good for me. Then, after doubt comes, it's closely followed by a denial of God's word. Eve says, you know, um, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we must not eat. Look at the serpent's response in verse 4. No, you will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, determining good and evil. Then the final step to sin is making the decision to be the ruler ourselves. Verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Here is the appeal to sinful pride. The temptation is not to become a lawbreaker, but a lawmaker. You know better than God. You've got this sorted. You can determine your own way. You can work out what is good and not. God's done some good stuff, but imagine your little finishing touches to make it just that bit better. In taking and eating from the tree, Adam and Eve declare they know what is best for them. Their wisdom is greater than God's. They make the rules. They are literally in the place of God. And friends, that is pride that led them there. Rising to the position of the ruler of the universe, going, look at me. Look at what I can do, grasping for the crown and the power. And it breaks the relationship between them and God. You see how grieved God is by it. In verse 13, he says later on, what have you done? What have you done? God's law isn't the only thing broken here. His heart is broken as well. So he then measures out judgment on his rebel creatures so that they won't keep sinning. He removes them from access to the tree of life where they will no longer live forever. He says, therefore, the future means that you will die 
And there's present destruction as well. And then what happens in the following chapters? Well, we see God's people become proud rebels. Self-centered to the core, accusing one another of things. And only one chapter later, killing one another. Proverbs 16 verse 5 says this. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord because we think we know better than him. (laughs) Friends, pride is so pervasive. Pride can stop us from coming to Jesus because we think we know better. Pride can stop us from coming back to Jesus because, oh, I don't want to go back to church. People will see that I, I did this and I did this dumb thing and so we don't do it. Pride will destroy your marriage. Because you're too proud to say, sorry, I was wrong. Pride will destroy relationships because we're too proud to forgive someone else. We want to stand on our rights and say, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm going to stand here and I'm not going to forgive. Pride stops us from serving. Oh, this thing is beneath me. I'm not going to do that. No, that's not for me. Do you see who I am? Have you not seen who, what I've done? Pride stops us from giving. Because our purposes and our plans for our finances and for our time are more valuable than God's. And so we say, no, I want to do what I want to do. It stops us from growing because our purposes matter more than God's purposes. So we don't grow. We're too proud to admit that we don't know things. And so we sit in the ignorance that we have. It stops us from being thankful because we think that the strength that we have and the wisdom that we have and the opportunities that we have all come from us. So I don't want to thank others. Why would I thank you? I should thank myself. Good work, Rowan. Look at what you've done. Look at how you've you know, given yourself that next breath and made your heart beat and your lungs fill with air. <laughs> if only I was more truthful with myself. As God's people, Israel, are about to enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy, they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They're about to experience the incredible blessing that God is, is going to give them of, of, of what he said to Abraham. That he would make them into a great nation, that he would give them a land, that he would bring them a blessing, that all nations would be blessed through them. God, through Moses, gives them a pep talk before they enter into the land in Deuteronomy 8. And he says this, and it's worth heeding because it might as well be spoken straight to us. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, his ordinances and statues that I'm giving you today. When you eat and are full, and build beautiful houses to live in, and your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold multiply, and everything else you have increases. Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. (laughs) But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. In order to confirm his covenant, he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Everything we experience, the good, the things we have, the blessings are about God bringing about his purposes. It's all for him and his plans to confirm his promises, his covenant that he swore on oath to his forefathers, that he would bless the world through a descendant of Abraham called Jesus. Pride says... All of this, all of my life, all that I have, it's all about me. Rather than recognizing it's got nothing to do with me. 
It's got everything to do with God. And in this passage, we see three areas that pride raises its ugly head. And they're worth kind of unpacking. Wisdom, beauty, and health. Three sub-points of this section. Wisdom, beauty, and health. The first one is wisdom. We forget the Lord because we think we know better. I was chatting to some people this week um, who were talking about uh, we're much more enlightened as people now. And so that's why we know that things like the resurrection couldn't have happened. Science tells us that. And, you know, we, we can do way better things than we used to be able to do. I said, like build pyramids that we don't know how they built. You're like, no, we're not. That's just such an arrogant position to be in, thinking that we're far smarter than we were then. Yes, we've, we've developed on the learning that's gone before. We think we know better. There is the heart of sin coming out. We're so ignorant of what's gone before us. How often does the young punk never listen to the old wise person? So often. 1 Corinthians 8 tells us that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge without love, knowledge not enacted in the right way according to God's way, leads to pride every time. Pride in intellect. You know, that moment where you need to let someone know that you know something. You need, you need to let them know that you worked this out. I didn't get any help. I didn't read it anywhere. I worked this out myself. We stand strong, thinking that our brains came from us. <laughs> you know, the times where we need to tell someone how much we know about a certain subject, not in order to bounce things off them and have a good discussion, but just to let them really know that you know everything that there is to know on that, and you're, you're far above them. <laughs> the time that we feel the need to say how many degrees we have, or how much work we've done, or how much experience we have in a certain area, because we need to feel good about ourselves by saying, look how good I am. So often it's the reason that people talk at us rather than to us, or we talk at people rather than to them. But we can display pride and wisdom in the other direction as well. Have you ever heard it come out as, oh, I'm not an academic type person like that. I'm not all booky. I've just got street smarts. I've just been around a while. Look at, how, look at all my experience that I've given myself and how great I am that you've been in the academic ivory tower and really I've lived in the real world, <laughs> you lowly academic scum. We don't realise how much pride, particularly within wisdom, lurks within us. Sometimes pride is why we won't sit through an exam. We hate exams. We don't want to do an exam because then it will show up that I've got some failings, and I like the idea that I don't fail in anywhere. So we don't, we don't do it. We go, oh, I don't like exams. I don't sit exams. It's also why some of us don't study for exams. Because we don't want to find out what we're really like if we actually studied, and then find out, wow, I did my best, and I didn't get there. I remember um, at Bible college, Sarah and I did first year together, and we both studied Greek. And I worked hard to do that. But then I worked out pretty soon that every exam in Greek that Sarah and I did, she beat me at. And so I think I started to go, oh, I won't study as much, so then I've got a reason. Oh, she was good at studying. She's not better than me. I'm probably better than her. But, you know, she beat me by three marks because she's good at maths and can remember stuff. And you have all these things that play through your head that, that you, you might start procrastinating because, well, you want to leave it to the last minute and then you've got an excuse. Yeah, I was really pushed for time. This is the best I could do in the time that I had because you're worried that people will say, oh, you're not as good. Pride is behind all of that. We often busy ourselves with so much Which gives us the excuse not to be as good as we want to be because in the end, the most important thing to us is how we look to others, that they might see that we're great in what we do ourselves. Pride and wisdom is there, thinking that we know better than God rather than the fact that he has given it all to us. 
But the other area that pride steps through is the area of beauty. The allure of beautiful things. Beautiful houses, beautiful holidays, beautiful health, beautiful people. We have great pride in how how great things look and how good we look. Peter, speaking to women in 1 Peter 3, has a point that's particularly for women, but applicable to us guys as well. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. We're so caught up in how we look and how we come across in being beautiful and in beautiful things and saying, yes, look how great that is. And in making ourselves that way. I mean, when the fully chiseled man, you know, the guy that's been at the gym and worked out, or the really toned woman, when they get to God on the day of judgment, do you think God's going to look down and say, hey, Rowan, nice definition in your pectorals. That's pretty good. No, he made us. He's not going to be like, wow, that impresses me, Rowan. What impresses him is when we use our bodies that he's given us uh, in line with his word and let him work through us to, to tell others about him and to make us more and more like Jesus in our character and nature and actions. Oh, that pleases the Lord as he works in us and through us. We get so worried about aging and think, oh, as I get older, I'm getting wrinkles, or I'm getting gray hair and, and things aren't, what will I do? <laughs> the great news is God says, as you age, you become more beautiful so long as you become more and more like Jesus, as you let him keep shaping you and molding you from the inside out, that is beautiful. And how how good is it when you see that godly saint, that person who's been serving Jesus for 40, 50, 70 years, that Jesus is their center and they're like, "I'm, I'm just serving him and want to know him more and more and can't wait to meet him. While we run around going, oh, yes, I've got this thing to do and I've got to make sure that works well and I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that. I'm concerned that, you know, I haven't got my makeup on today or I didn't. I walked out of the house without doing my hair. I stopped and said, Ethan, did I own my hair? He was like, no, you haven't. I ran back in and did my hair. And I went, oh, I'm literally going to preach against this in a second. <laughs> I didn't want it to be a distraction. That's how I justified it. <laughs> but we do it with beauty in the way that we sing. I was reflecting on this this morning. Sometimes as we come together, we sing in church to build one another up. But so often we sing kind of quietly about amazing things because we're worried that the person next to us will hear us. What's the very purpose of singing? Teach and admonish one another so that we can sing loudly and we can be encouraging one another as we sing. But why am I worried? Well, I was singing this morning, I was singing about how great God was and I thought, oh, I wonder if the person in front of me can hear how good my voice is. I kid you not. That's literally what I thought. And I'm like, Wow. This has got to come out in a few minutes. <laughs> Are you like, <laughs> we do it so much, pride steps in. The only reason I can think of that we're not singing loudly as we gather together and encouraging one another is because pride is winning. Is it not? From God's point of view, He wants us to be born beautiful internally as we encourage one another, not on the outside, not worrying about the beauty of the tone of our voice, but the words that we say that build one another up, that encourage one another. One of the most encouraging things I have is a friend who cannot sing in tune. Now, I wouldn't put him up the front because it's kind of not helpful for everyone else who's trying to sing in tune, but him singing out of tune to the glory of God. I'm like, look at that. This is great. People go, why would you do that? Because it's the words that he's saying. The final area Moses picks up here in Deuteronomy is wealth and possessions. That 
the things that we have, the sheep and, and the goats and the, and, and, the, and the coins and our bank balance makes us go, yes, look at what I've given myself. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable. He says this, A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I'll store all my grain and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is to be demanded of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? That is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The issue in this parable here was not saving, was not storing up things, but thinking that he'd achieve them for himself and that they were for himself. That's what's foolish. His pride, look at what I've done. I can sit back and relax and say, drink from all my great glories of how good it is that it's all for me, that I'm in control. God says, you're in control of nothing. It's interesting at the start of the parable, the man, a rich man's land was very productive. <laughs> how Jesus puts it very helpfully. He wasn't very productive. It was the land that he was looking after. The land was productive. God gave it to him. The money that we have, the wealth, the opportunities are given by God. None of us deserve it. No one. We should put over our bank accounts God's money. We should put on our calendars and our watches God's time. It's all his. It all belongs to him. We're just stewards to use it for his purpose. We get to enjoy it, yes. But we have not achieved it. But I worked hard for that with the brain God gave you and the arms and legs God gave you and the breath God gave you. <laughs> when we look at our investments, we feel pride in what we've done. When we look at our bank balance, we can feel pride in, in our security. We miss that God has given it all to us. But you don't need to be rich to be proud. You can be ashamed of where you live. You might live in a state house. You might be ashamed that, that you live in a state house. And right there, you're experiencing a form of pride. I should be somewhere better. I deserve something better. And if you think pride is not your issue, then there's a good chance that self-pity is. I was reading something from John Piper who said that if boasting is the response of pride to success, boasting is the response of pride to success, then self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Right, boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've sacrificed or suffered so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong, and self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. And the reason self-pity doesn't look like pride immediately is that it, it appears to be needy. But the desire of self-pity is not really for someone uh, to be seen as helpless, but we want to be seen as a hero. Look at what you've achieved. Look at what you've done. We go over this self-pitying situation. Look at the hardships I've been through. Look at the situation that I'm in. And we want people to say, you're amazing. You're so good. You've done that on your own strength. You've run through. And we say, yes, yes, tell me that now. That's what I want. But the example that we get in the scriptures is not of self-aggrandizing, but self-humbling. So let's look then at the answer to pride. It comes in Jesus, Philippians 2 verse 5. Paul says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, 
who, existing in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, by taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he'd come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Where Adam and Eve grasped at the kingship of God, Jesus did not grasp at what was already his own. Where Adam and Eve reached for the crown of God, Jesus surrendered his crown. He reversed their ascent with his descent. He replaces their ladder trying to achieve being God with a cross. When he dies in their place. Instead of proud, grasping hands, grabbing for self, he shows us humble, nailed, outstretched hands, dying for us. Jesus' example is is the total reverse. It's a total reversal of our future as he takes the penalty for our sin. He replaces judgment with forgiveness. But he also reverses our present as well. Not only does he take out our death and judgment, but he gives us a new attitude to life. We've been saved. It is finished. So now I can live knowing that Jesus has paid the price for me. I can can look at his way of living and go, I don't have to do it in order to be saved, but I'm free to do it. I'm free to live his way rightly because I don't need to think that I'm important because God the Son died in my place and I'm called his child. Therefore, our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. And that's the attitude that the reversal that God wants to do in us. Jesus climbed down the ladder of humility, rung after rung after rung. He gave up the majesty of his glory in heaven. He comes down to the the dust of the earth, not as a king, but a servant. He doesn't just give up his comfort. He gives up his life. Not just dying, but crucified. Not for friends, but for enemies. And Paul says our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I'm going to dwell on that just for a second. That is what we're to be like. That is what we're to strive for. Not saying, how great am I? Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've done. But look how I can pour out my life and what I've been given for the sake of the kingdom. Storing treasure in heaven. Seeing people come to know Christ and remaining in Christ. It's in looking to Jesus that we find the antidote to our pride. We see his humility in his death in our place on the cross. The world we live in is so upwardly mobile. Everyone's trying to get an upgrade, a a raise, a promotion. In an upwardly mobile world, we're confronted by a downwardly mobile saviour who says life is not found in self-fulfillment, living life our own way. Instead, true satisfaction and happiness is found in giving up our pathetic pretend game of being God. Stop it. I need to stop it. You need to stop it. Dying to pride means taking up our cross, as Jesus commanded, and saying, I'm going to follow the Savior who is way better than I could ever be. And yet he loves me and he's died for me and he's saved me. I want to to be like him every day. I want to be made more like him. I want to serve his people his way for his glory so more people would experience the love he's shown me and the relationship we have with God because of him. Dying to pride means dying to yourself, to your own wants and desires, so that you might become alive to the needs of those around us. It's a complete attitude reversal. 
Philippians 2.14 says this, Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so you may be blameless and pure children of God, who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life. How great do people look when they reflect the goodness of our King, when they lay down their lives and say, I'll serve you, it's about you, not me. Amidst a crooked world, light amongst the darkness, life in a world of death is what we are to be. But what, what, is, what does Paul say we ought to be doing? By holding firm to the word of life. By holding firm to the word of life. Looking to Jesus. Recognizing who he is and what he's done. See his humility that he's died in our place and risen again. Remembering that God never purchases anything to put us in the garage. But he bought us to change us. So let me ask you today, as you fix your eyes on Jesus, not on our pride and going, oh, I've got to stop this bit, but on how great Jesus is, because as we look to him, that will help us pick where we're at. Let me ask you this morning, which of these things is stopping you see how wonderful God is and how amazing it is to be called his child? I'm going to ask you a series of questions. I just want us to reflect. Are you teachable? Do you welcome feedback? Do you repent quickly? And do you repent willingly? Do you often see the problems in a relationship between two people as as someone else's fault? Are you considerate of others or pushy and demanding? Are you able to serve with joy rather than through gritted teeth? Are you able to be served yourself? Are you just as amazed at what Jesus has done for you as the day you became a Christian? Do you disagree with others graciously? How much recognition do you need before you give up? As you tell stories, are you mostly the hero or the victim? Can you fail publicly? Can you say, I don't know, I don't understand, and I need help? Can you do good things and not need to tell others about them? Can you celebrate other people's gifts and successes? And is Jesus the hero of your life? Or are you? 
Friends, as I reflect on those questions, there are so many areas that I need to repent. So many areas I grasp at putting myself in the center. So when you join with me as we come before our great God and ask him to help us fix our eyes on Jesus rather than ourselves. Let's pray. Father God, we admit that so often we love living on the throne of our lives. We love people seeing things that we do that really are things that you've enabled us to do, that you've allowed us to do, that you've done through us, but we, we take them as, as amazing things that we have done. We forget that you have given us everything. We so often try and bring attention to our own lives rather than Jesus' life. Father, you know our hearts. We ask that today you'd show us where we need to repent. You'd help us to be honest with one another. Not proud in not sharing what's really going on, but be able to, to share together so we might walk alongside one another. Thank you so much for Jesus' death in our place, that he has forgiven us, that he has paid the price. And thank you so much for his example of humility. Lord, would you captivate us with a fuller and truer and greater picture of your son? May we see Jesus for who he is. And through that, through your word and by your spirit, would you shape us into people who long day after day after day to be made more like Jesus? Make us like him, we pray, not in order that we might be good enough for you, but because we already are. Encourage us to live with humility for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.